As has already been mentioned this morning by way of announcement, what a blessed privilege we have today, not only to welcome our regular membership, but also the visitors who've come our way. We hope that you have an uplifting and enjoyable time worshiping according to both truth and spirit. And in that sense, may we each, in fact, be able to live more in harmony with the will of God this week as we're strengthened indeed in the most holy faith. 2 Peter 1, verse number 1. We have, for the past several weeks, turned our attention to several New Testament books that are discussed in the Bible Bowl activities this year, the books of James through Jude. And last Lord's Day morning, we, upon studying the book of Jude, drew that series of lessons to a conclusion. And so beginning today, we will begin to look at various other lessons, not necessarily from those books. But as we do that, I would ask that today some of the thoughts that we shall share not only will be found within those same books, but in fact will be presented in a way that was different than the way we looked at them so briefly in the weeks that we just passed. As you can see from the text that was read a moment ago from Hebrews 8 verse 5, as well as the title I've given to the lesson, See thou make all things according to the pattern. As we consider that idea this morning, may we by introduction begin in the following way and remind ourselves of the existence of a pattern and the purpose that it, ind it indeed serves. Isn't it a true thing that for a construction engineer, a blueprint is a rather significant thing? It is a pattern for the completion of the given structure or building under construction. The person can use that pattern, that blueprint, such that the information, the specificity, and the details allow the construction of a building meeting the desires of the one who paid for the blueprint and whose house it will be. But by the same token, for that person who is a seamstress, that pattern can this be used to make a garment that meets the exact requirements of the person who is desiring it to be sewed and in that sense, that pattern can be used to make any number of copies, all identical in structure, to the very idea set forth by the one who desired the pattern. For, for a cook, a recipe is a rather important pattern. It allows one to make a cake, a dish, some other kind of dessert, if you will, that follows exactly the means by which the taste should be right, the proportion should be right. All matters ought to be appropriate and write in accordance to the desire. I suspect we each could at least imagine the structure and usage of a pattern. But of course, our lesson today will not be discussing a recipe for a dish that we may eat physically, nor will it be that for a construction engineer to use a blueprint to build a physical edifice. And of course, it will not be for a seamstress to produce a pattern or a garment using one. Our interest shall be, do the scriptures present a pattern for anything? And if so, does the meaning therefrom equate to what we've learned so far? I'd suggest that we take an interesting journey beginning, in fact, in the Old Testament and see where the concept leads us to Hebrews 8 verse 5 before we're completed this morning. Along that line, might I mention that that pattern, if it's followed correctly and if it's pursued exactly, will allow the completion and the existence of these entities that match exactly the requirements of the designer, and furthermore, they have the qualities that are exactly perfect with regard to the pattern. Now, there's an example that might get us started in 2 Kings 16. In the heart of the Old Testament, we remember that a king named Ahaz was desirous of having a particular altar constructed. 
While he was visiting Samaria, he saw an altar and he drew a pattern and sent it back to Uriah. And he had Uriah construct an altar exactly like the one he'd seen. How did Uriah know how to do that correctly? He had a pattern. For you and me today, in asking about the nature of a pattern, might I submit, by as we can conclude the introduction at least, that on the one hand, a pattern is a joyous thing. It allows one to meet a standard that has been set by some authority. On the other hand, it often presents dire warnings. Dire matters in which if the pattern is not followed properly and correctly, the consequences can be disastrous. Ask any construction engineer, if the blueprint isn't followed right, what if the building were to collapse? What if the bridge were to fail? Then, of course, it would be a catastrophic matter indeed. As you and I consider the pattern, the book of Exodus will then get us started more correctly and also more firmly. As the children of Israel found themselves in Egyptian slavery, in the bondage to that foreign land and that foreign empire, we remember that God nonetheless had not forgotten His promise to Abraham and to his seed, and He determined to bring them forth into a land flowing with milk and honey. As they began that journey and as they were released by the great power of the God of heaven, it began, of course, with the calling of Moses through a burning bush. But quickly ten plagues were rained down upon Egypt, and soon they hastened Israel in Israel's exodus from that land. Ultimately, when they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, all the while the Egyptians were drowned in the aftermath of the waters rushing upon them, Israel had been freed from the slavery of Egypt. But they soon came to the base or the foot, if you will, of Mount Sinai. And to them, God, through the agency of Moses, gave first the Ten Commandments. Oh, the power and the extended profoundness of those Ten Commandments. But that was only the beginning. Over 640 laws were given to the children of Israel, things they were to do and other things they were not to do. In the extent of those laws, however, one subset of them begins in verse 25, or chapter 25 of the book of Exodus. In the times that you and I may have read through that book, studying it somewhat carefully, perhaps we had to pause when we arrive at chapter 25. What is the purpose of this? In fact, would you consider with me what's found in that chapter and the 15 chapters that follow it? We remember that on that occasion, after delivering these laws, the various generalities of them, the profoundness and punishments associated with them, he proceeds at length to describe this structure that the children of Israel were to construct. It was the tabernacle. Not only were the directions concerning it in general given, they were told the dimensions it was to have, out of what they were to make it, the various interior furnishings out of what it was to be made, how it was to be carried, the fact it was to be placed in specific places in the structure. They were given no leeway whatsoever in how to place it, construct it, organize it, or set it forth. In fact, God even gave directions as to who was to carry the furniture. It was not left to just any amongst Israel to pick up the Ark of the Covenant and carry it. Only selected ones had that privilege. But as you and I read through those 15 chapters beginning in verse 20, chapter 25, and note the rather pressing details given, isn't it interesting that one grand thing we can learn from that? 
That's a part of the Word of God. And the direct conclusion is our God is interested in details. Details are important. Sometimes upon earth we gain the impression, at least by the comment of some, that details are unimportant, that it doesn't really matter. But it mattered to God. Isn't it interesting? And would you note some verses with me? In, from the very text we just read in Exodus 25, in verse number 9 of that chapter, notice with me how important details were to God. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. God thus said, Moses, I am about to deliver, to reveal to you and the children of Israel the pattern for this tabernacle. You make sure to follow every detail of it. And as if that weren't enough, look with me further in that same chapter to verse number 40. He says, And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. By that time God had described several of the pieces of furniture like the table of showbread, like the altar of burnt offering. And yet one more time God reminds him, Moses, be sure that you make everything according to the pattern that I've showed you in the mount. In the next chapter, chapter 26, notice with me verse 30 of that chapter, if you would. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. Perhaps those three verses alone have been enough to inform us that God was exceedingly interested in those details. He had not been talking just to hear his head rattle. What he had delivered was critical. And he expected Moses and Israel to follow it absolutely and carefully. In fact, the very issue of this tabernacle, on two different occasions, the New Testament writers refer to it. As you note there at the bottom of that screen, once was in Stephen's dramatic sermon in Acts chapter 7. The other was the very text that we had read in our hearing a moment ago. See, thou make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount, Hebrews 8 verse 5. Perhaps we have observed enough to remind us that this pattern was not only significant, it was heaven-given and bound upon the children of Israel to construct that tabernacle exactly according to it. It would behoove us to ask, how important were those details? When God gave details in the course of the Old Testament, was He serious about maintaining them? Did he allow the people to do as they wished and ignore the details he had given? Or did he punish them when they forsook the details? Let's look at some more texts that perhaps will direct our minds more carefully toward answering that question. As you consider with me those given in Leviticus chapter 10 beginning in verse 1, the children of Israel still had not arrived at the promised land. That book, of course, centered in the very scene of the wilderness wandering. But we learn rather interestingly as verse 1 begins in that chapter that Aaron had two boys, the two oldest ones on that occasion, who were serving as priests. We learn immediately that they desired to bring an offering, if you will, an offering of incense unto God to burn that incense in His presence. However, as the verse ends, we remember that they brought strange fire which God had not commanded them, or, as the text says, which He commanded them not. We immediately are faced with an interesting dilemma. 
Here we have an example of two people, Nadab and Abihu, who did not do what God said in the details he had provided, in the specificity that he had revealed. They chose to do something else. They brought fire which he had not commanded. Did God ignore the scene? Did he accept it anyway? Was it pleasing in his sight despite the fact that they had not obeyed the pattern? The next verse will inform us quickly of that answer. It says, And fire came out and devoured them on the spot. Their lives were taken immediately. God's details were important. He intended not only Moses and not only Aaron, but all the children of these, including Nadab and Abihu, to maintain adherence to that pattern. Maybe that's only one example that leads us more clearly to see other examples as well. We have so far seen in this first one that not only are details important, but God punishes when the details are overlooked and when they are not followed. Later in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, we read of an extended discussion. This is patterned, by the way, in 2 Samuel 6. But there, there was the case dealing with one of those pieces of furniture of the tabernacle. It was the Ark of the Covenant. That ark, you see, was exceedingly important because upon it was the mercy seat, and that is where God met with His people. Exodus 25, verse 22 tells us. Might we notice, though, that on the occasion of 1 Chronicles 13, that ark of the covenant was residing then in a village known as kerjath Jearim. It was the desire of David to bring it to Jerusalem and to properly place it in a matter of respect, so that the children of Israel could look upon it and use it and allow it the proper and due reverence that it was worthy to have. However, in what way was that ark to be brought from kerjath Jearim to Jerusalem? We've already learned that God had specified only certain people were to touch it. Only certain ones were allowed to move that ark. It didn't matter the intent of the person. If that person was not the proper family... That person was not to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And furthermore, God had specified in the book of Numbers the manner in which that Ark was to be moved. With all that said, we come to 1 Chronicles 13 and notice how it was done. They loaded it on a cart, which was not the way that God had stated it was to be moved. And those who hauled it were not of the proper family. Maybe we then aren't too shocked when we read a little later in that chapter. The time came when the oxen stumbled and a man named Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. One cannot question or doubt his intent. His intent was noble and right, but did he meet the pattern? He didn't. Was God pleased? Was he the one who overlooked on that occasion this matter concerning Uzzah? The answer is no. Uzzah was struck on the spot and he died. One more time, the details were so significant, God didn't overlook it. God was not pleased with it. And even David stated that God was displeased. Thus, David began to inquire diligently, and two chapters later, he brought the ark in the way that was commanded, and everything worked out well. Those two examples perhaps hasten us to another one in 2 Kings 5. There, the gentleman's name was Naaman. Naaman, of course, was a Syrian military leader and one who had many under his command. There was a prisoner, a little Israelite maid in Syria at the time, 
And she not only was aware of the fact that Naaman was a leper, but she said, if my Lord, namely if Naaman, were in Israel, there would be a prophet who would heal him of that leprosy. Naaman not only was interested in that, but he proceeded at once to make arrangements with the king of Israel such that he could have his leprosy healed. When the final matter came, we recall that Elisha simply sent a messenger and told Naaman, you go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. As we well recall, Naaman was beside himself. Absolutely beside himself with rage and fury. Here he was a dignitary. The least this prophet could do is come out and talk to me. And yet he sent a messenger. And not only that, this river that he's wanting me to dip in is muddy and unacceptable, at least in my sight. There are rivers far better than this back in Damascus. Namely, the Far Far and Abana rivers, they're far better than the old muddy Jordan. However, his servants in a rather powerful element of wiseness, urged him, if he had not bidden of thee do some great thing, would thou not have done it? Naaman came to his senses and went and dipped one time, two times, three times, four times, five times, six times, and he was still a leper. Six times hadn't been enough to do it. The prophet had specified seven. When Naaman dipped the seventh time, what happened to him? clean and white as snow. The leprosy was gone. Details are important. Three times wasn't enough. Six times wasn't enough. When Naaman had done exactly, when he did precisely as was commanded of him, following the pattern given by the prophet, the end result was noble, profitable, worthy, and good. To say these things about the issue concerning pattern we notice that when the pattern is followed properly, as in Naaman's case, the results meet the approval of God and thus are significant and noble in his sight. But when the former two cases, the pattern was not followed, the results were disastrous. Nadab and Abihu lost their life. Uzzah lost his life. May we ask in the continuing matter this morning, what about the spiritual life of you and me in this 21st century? Is there a pattern? Is there a specified and detailed pattern that governs, for instance, our service to God, the worship in our assemblies, the various character of becoming a member of His body, the way in which we, for example, become a Christian? As you and I open the pages of the New Testament, we quickly learn a number of things about the existence of a pattern. Would you consider with me Hebrews 9, verse number 9? One chapter following where we read earlier, the following inspired statement is made. Which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect and as pertaining to the conscience. The Hebrew writer's point was this. After discussing the tabernacle, he said, Do you not know that that tabernacle served as a figure of the manner in which we today are able to appear pleasing before God. In just the same way as Israel worshipped and served in that correct and properly constructed tabernacle, we today as Christians serve Him in a right and properly designated way. Men are not left to their own devices to come up with means of approaching God. He has given us the pattern. He has prescribed it for us in His will. 
there is but one pattern thus described for that church, that beautiful and blessed body of Christ. The first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 remind us so powerfully of the uniqueness of this pattern. Would you recall with me some of the affirmations there made? When Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, very clearly and said, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. A platform, a foundation, if you will, of seven unities, seven ones. And the first one had to do with one body. It is an unquestionable and inescapable fact of the New Testament. There is but one body, and the body is the church, Ephesians 1.22. To make that statement reminds us this pattern thus presented is a unique matter. And that uniqueness is so very strong and mighty. As we've made observation and note of that, consider how often that helps us appreciate the later aspects. What did Jude then mean when he said to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints in Jude verse 3? Of course, we understand the faith was once delivered and there is but one of them. It is not that mankind has his choice upon faiths. There is really only one. No wonder Paul thus urged the Galatians and in fact rebuked them sternly when he said that they were to recognize that that gospel delivered, there is really no other. Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. But he said, let that one be accursed who thinks to follow yet any other than that one delivered and revealed in the greatness of, from God himself. These concepts lead us to appreciate that that unity, that uniqueness, that pattern that's presented means that there's an obligation for you and me. We need to make certain that our worship, that the other matters related to the body are themselves done in accordance to the pattern. For if they're not... We shouldn't think that God will be acceptable of them. We shouldn't think that he'll just ignore that which we do and pretend that it's all right. He didn't in Uzzah's case. He didn't in the case of Nadab and Abihu. Details are important. And thus, when we look at some of the following examples that we might use, we can then see the warning of 1 John 4 verse 1. What about those instances where individuals take upon themselves to speak things that are not found in this word. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. When you and I listen to the various things that take place, it is an absolute tragedy of eternal proportion that men try to tamper with the pattern. They try to take it, cut parts out of it, and sew parts into it, changing the pattern, but God said there's one pattern and this pattern, if it's to be pleasing to me, must be followed. That lady who takes that pattern and uses it to make a dress, if she starts changing and altering, she may well make a dress. There's no argument to that. But will that dress match the pattern then? It will not. If men tamper with the pattern, will they produce a church, if you will, that matches the approved pattern of the God of heaven? No, they won't. 
They may make some other organization called a church, but they'll not make the church bought by the blood of our Lord, Acts 20, 28. They'll not produce an organization appreciated and understood in the purity and holiness with which it was fashioned. See, thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee. Hebrews 8, verse 5. In discussing then some of the thoughts that could well be extended in our lesson today, at this point I would urge you to think with me about not only a distant tragedy, but there are individuals and congregations in this county and in Jackson County and in other counties right near here who have attempted to tamper with the pattern. They may well utilize the name Church of Christ, but that which is produced and made is sadly, sadly not according to the pattern. It may break our heart, but the fact is nonetheless true. It would, of course, take us the rest of the day at the least to discuss all of that which could well be worthy of discussion. But just to briefly mention a few of them, these would be worthy of remark. Some individuals, some congregations, are well of the disposition to think that the grace of God itself is completely and entirely enough to save separate and apart from any obedience on the part of mankind. Now, for many, that may sound terribly, terribly good. And that doctrine, of course, is not new in any sense of the word. In fact, John Calvin was one of the first to make that presentation, and that's been now almost 400 years ago. But in making those observations, you and I may quickly make the following remarks using the Word of God. Does the Bible support that, and would that be in accordance to the pattern? Well, let's look at some passages to see. First of all, if grace of God alone is sufficient and completely able to save separate and apart from anything else, then that must exclude faith. But yet, Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And thus we see the absolute essentiality, the absolute necessity of faith, so apparently grace alone is not absolutely enough. But what about some other texts that I've asked you to consider? In Mark 16, verse 16, what meaning and reasoning then would there have been in the statements of our Savior when in the light of His resurrection and the events associated with the sacrificial death that He had just made, He said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We notice there the word grace doesn't even appear. It's not even in the text. Our Lord predicated salvation on two other things, neither of which was grace. One was belief, one was baptism. But consider that in the light of Ephesians 2 verse 8. Without question, this is the text quite often utilized to make the statement at the outset that grace is enough. Paul, in a powerful and dramatic fashion to those in Ephesus, said, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As he began verse 8, By grace are ye saved. Did he stop the sentence at that point? Well, anyone who can read knows that he didn't. By grace are ye saved through faith. You see, there are two elements absolutely stated to be essential. There's grace on the one hand and there's faith on the other. 
and one apart from the other will not lead to salvation for, for the human family. We understand that God, by the greatness of his character, extended the offer of grace to every single person. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Paul thus stated to Titus, the grace has been offered to everybody, but Paul, will everybody receive it? No, Demas didn't. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Several in Rome didn't. Romans 10, verse 18. You see, the offer for grace is thus made to all, but not all will accept it. That's the part that involves faith, isn't it? Heaven has done its part. God sent His only begotten Son to shed His sinless blood upon the cross for all mankind, but all men will, re not, will not accept it. Some will reject it. Some will ignore it. Some will pretend they need something else to be saved. You see, the reception of that grace is absolutely critical. Paul addressed that point in 2 Corinthians 6. He pleaded with the Corinthians to receive the grace of God. Well, that's interesting. If grace alone is enough to save, why were they even in need of receiving it? After all, the Corinthians, he had called saints in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1. You see, those who thus say that grace, apart from obedience, is entirely enough to save, have missed so much of the point of the New Testament. And what's more, as we've seen, that does not meet God's pattern. His pattern is so very clear. His pattern is so very to the point. Perhaps one final text to consider in that very line that I ask you to note was the 22nd verse of Hebrews chapter 9. For if grace alone is enough, where does the blood of Christ ever enter the picture? Where does the blood of Christ ever set before you and me the greatness and power of its cleansing agency with regard to sin? Well, perhaps that question answers itself. It's not easily to be found at all if grace alone is sufficient. But yet what else may well be taught by those who are certainly sincere? It has to do with baptism, doesn't it? That some are willing to teach that some are willing to even impress upon the minds of others that baptism is not necessary to be saved. Clearly, the church has been involved in battle now for 20 centuries over the subject of baptism. Many through the ages have felt it unnecessary. Many have, in fact, powerfully preached it to be non-essential. doesn't matter what they have preached. All we need to ask, what does the pattern say? Again, men did not set the pattern, but God did. And if God affirmed the essentiality, the necessity of baptism, no man can change it. As we noted earlier in Mark 16, Jesus did say, He that believeth and is baptized. That word and joins two things together that are equal in rank. Jesus did not say, He that believeth or is baptized. He said, and. And and means and. We can't change that. The pattern has fixed it. On the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Peter didn't say or. He didn't say perhaps. He said and. And isn't it significant that for us to reach conclusions, anything to the contrary, then that must mean that God did not say what he meant. In other words, he lied. Does God lie? Titus 1 verse 2 says it is impossible for him to lie. The Word of God thus affirms for us precisely what it means, for He meant what He said, and He said what He meant. 
we know then that baptism cannot be viewed as optional. It's a necessary thing. For in every instance of the New Testament in which we read of salvation as it relates to baptism, baptism is stated to be necessary. And furthermore, every single time without exception, baptism precedes salvation. One isn't baptized and then is saved, or one is not saved and then baptized later. Baptism and salvation go hand in hand. When one is baptized, he is then saved. That's the statement Jesus made. The point of these things is that the pattern is significant and the details are important and we can't optionally change them, tamper with them, remove them, extend them. Maybe the final one would have to do with worship that we could quickly mention in what time we have remaining. Worship. We understand this collective and beautiful assembly such as we're involved in at the moment in which we come together and exalt the name of God. We magnify His matchless and greatness of His presence. We appreciate the blessings that He has heaped upon us. And not only that, of course, we remember the beautiful thing His Son did for us. We notice that worship is regulated in the New Testament. That is to say, there's a pattern for it. No wonder Paul told those in Corinth, As I have given orders to they in Macedonia, so too do ye. They in Macedonia were doing the same thing that they were in Corinth. There was a pattern to be followed regarding worship. We aren't left to do what we prefer, what we like, what we'd rather have or see. It's regulated. There's a pattern. It's then a sad thing when there are those who choose to add things to that pattern. They take things out or add things to it, thinking that everything is right and fine. When all the while, Nadab and Abihu, when they tampered with worship, they were killed. When the case of Uzzah, remember he lost his life. Oh, it's true that God may not strike men instantly dead like he did in that day, but think about the day of judgment. What a frightful occasion it will be to stand before God, perhaps thinking that things are well, when he said, you tampered with my pattern. You didn't worship according to the pattern I gave you. Why did you do that? Judges chapter 2, verse 2. No wonder on that occasion you'll say, Depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't follow the pattern. It may bring a tear to our eye to see the urgency of the case when men tamper with the pattern. God's Son shed His blood for this pattern. And when anybody tampers with it, they're tampering with the blood of the Son. God said the Son is everything. In that parable that the Savior told in Mark chapter 12, though they killed all and ultimately killed the Son too. Notice that God said when He comes, He will utterly destroy those wicked husbandmen. When you tamper with the pattern, when we mess with the pattern, we're not tampering with something of human origin. We're tampering with something divinely given. These things lead us to perhaps summarize our lesson then finally today in thinking about the urgency of the pattern. We read again in Hebrews 8, verse 5, See thou do all things according to the pattern. Oh, how urgently and incessantly we need to love the pattern and seek to only do that which it approves, that which it authorizes. We can certainly then feel as we worship, not in a vain way or not in a way that's apart from the pattern, but in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. And may we strive to reach, to teach, to encourage, to pray for those who are tampering with the pattern that they may come to their senses 
David, remember, after Uzzah died, he got his house in order. He learned what to do to bring that ark acceptably to Jerusalem. May those in our communities, in our surrounding counties, learn what to acceptably do to make themselves and their worship and their teaching in harmony with the pattern. As we close the lesson today, Hebrews 8 verse 5, as it ends, says again, See thou do all things according to the pattern. He didn't say some things, he said all things. That includes the capability of becoming a child of God, a Christian. We're not left to become a Christian in whatever way we might want. We're told how that happens. We must believe in Jesus, repent of our sins, confess His matchless name as Messiah and Savior, and be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. If we could assist one or more today in doing that, what a joyous occasion it'd be. Furthermore, though, if we could aid you to rededicate your life to the cause of Christ, to come back to your first love, we, by using the pattern, can do that by prayer, by your confession and, and admission of repentance. 1 John chapter 1 as well as James chapter 5 and Acts chapter 8. Today, if we could assist you in accomplishing either of them, will you not let that be known publicly even now while together we stand and while we sing?